This is Luke McShane and you're listening to the Full English Breakfast. This is episode number 36 of the Full English Breakfast. I'm Macaulay Peterson. We're on the scene in London this week for the Oxford-Cambridge Varsity Chess Match, and we debut a new segment from actor Nick Murphy, which we're calling A Nickel for Your Thoughts. It's Chess in the UK as the theme today, and with me are two chaps who know a little something about that, International Master Lawrence Trent and Grandmaster Simon Williams. Good morning. How you doing, Macaulay? You okay? Well, it's a bit early, but I've got a cup of tea and I'm ready to go. I'm happy with Macaulay. He's got a cup of tea, like a true full English breakfast. You know, when you have a full English, you never really have a coffee with a full English. You have a nice milky cup of tea, put five sugars in there, couple of slices of bacon, and off you go. I got the milk, but I am going with the agave nectar. No idea wow. what it is. Sure, it's lovely, mate. <laughs> You'll never get it, Macaulay. You'll never get it, mate. You just stick to your lattes. But I'm feeling good. You know, it's an interesting day, isn't it? To get us rolling, we've got the closest thing on a weekly podcast to breaking news. And that's the uh, arrest out of Bulgaria of a name that should be familiar to all of our longtime listeners, Borislav Ivanov. So, uh, Lawrence, you uh, you brought this story to my attention, so tell us what uh, what's happened today. Yeah, well, I mean, this is all allegedly, so we'll put a little disclaimer in there, but uh, we have reports, we actually have a video as well, of Borislav Ivanov being arrested. Borislav Ivanov, for everybody who doesn't know, was the famous Bulgarian player. He's rated about 2,300 and just basically blasted an event, beat a number of grandmasters, and was, of course, accused of cheating because his results were just, you know, way higher than what he's expected. And then, of course, the moves were then cross-examined with the computer. And it was all pretty clear that he had cheated. He was eventually banned by the Bulgarian Chess Federation, although hard evidence of him cheating, I don't believe, was ever found, if I remember correctly. He got caught in a lot of situations, and uh, but no one could really prove it. They were saying he had a computer in his shoe, he had one on his body, he got strip searched, but I don't believe anyone actually found any like hard proof against him. So it was one of these cheating cases, which was a bit bizarre when it was going on. In the end... Um, he did end his own career because I think there was a tournament where he refused to take off his shoes <laughs> and allow the arbiter to check for hidden devices. It's bizarre, isn't it? Because, I mean, I know, you know, there wasn't much money going on in the tournaments he was playing in. He was doing this cheating for something like the odd hundred quid here and there, you know. And he must have been going to some extreme lengths to get this device in his shoe. It's kind of like a weird sort of James Bond movie, I guess, that, you know, is going on here. But again, like you say, Loz, now he's back in the news and he's been caught doing something allegedly properly illegal. So it's very bizarre. Well, now it all makes sense, really, because it turns out that the chess cheating was just a warm-up for his more professional criminal activity. That's right. <laughs> right. So he was counterfeiting his chess moves by using an engine, we suspect. Yes. And here he was now arrested for counterfeiting driver's licenses. I mean, maybe he is like the archetypical James Bond villain, isn't he? (laughs) 
you know, he, he's he's had his warm-up. He did his warm-up. He's moving to bigger, better things. He's going to take over the world when he gets out of prison. And uh, he's obviously quite a clever bloke, isn't he? Trying to work out how to cheat with something in your shoe. Yeah. Is that is that I, a I'm, fair thing to say? He's, I mean, he's I cheated cleverly, hasn't he? You know, a lot of these cheats are clever in some ways. But unfortunately, the really clever ones are the ones that never get caught, right? And he's, so he's not that clever, is he? Sure. He's been busted. Apparently, he's facing eight years of jail time for producing... Wow. These uh, fake driving licenses. Serious. Yeah, I think a lot of people will be happy about this news today, seeing him busted, um, (laughs) because he, you know, he cheated a lot of people, and it doesn't look like it's just in the world of chess, obviously. Um, And who knows what else he's been getting up to as well since we knew about him, which was back in 2013. It's strange, isn't it? I mean, in my experience, in the chess world, most people are, are, are pure gentlemen, but you do occasionally meet the rugged character, you know, sort of, you know, we hear about the chess hustlers. There's a couple in England. I won't name any names. I'm sure you you know who they are, Lawrence. I'm not actually talking about you as well or myself, (laughs) but um, there are a couple. And you actually get this a lot online as well, people cheating online when I don't see the point of that. But there are some interesting characters in chess, which I don't think a lot of people outside the chess world realise. You know, you get everyone from all walks of life competing and you know, this character is certainly one of the dodgy element there. Oh, no, absolutely. The good news for Borislav Ivanov is that facing eight years of jail time, he's going to have a lot of time to work on his chess game. <laughs> That's actually true. <laughs> he'll, he'll probably become a grandmaster while he's locked up. For real. But then when he comes out, no one will actually believe him. Okay, well, we'll put some clips from our previous coverage of Ivanov on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash the FEB. Check it out. Now, Oxford versus Cambridge, or as I like to call them, the Princeton and Harvard of England. They've been playing an annual chess match for well over a century, and this was, in fact, the 135th edition. It's the longest-running chess contest in the world. Did you know that, Lawrence? I did know that, as it goes, yes. I know some things. Not a lot, but that thing I did know. Pretty impressive stuff. Well, I got a taste of the history from someone who uh, has been to 17 of these events, and that's uh, writer and chess editor John Saunders. Where we are now, we're in a, a very uh, posh club in Pall Mall in London, a very um, exclusive club, and a whole load of young people are playing with each other, wearing their tuxedos looking incredibly elegant in a a very plush, posh, traditional, upper-class British setting. It was first played in 1873. The idea of the match was to be a rival to the Oxford-Cambridge rowing match, which is world famous, and they thought it would be a great idea for popularising chess. Um, They would rival the, the rowing match and get lots of people interested in chess. And how has that worked out for them? I think in the early years, it it worked pretty well. The second year of this match, 1874, they had 700 spectators, including Howard Staunton, who's um, kind of given his name to the chess pieces that we play with today. They had people like Zuckertort and Steinitz, who turned up to play blindfold simuls. It's a real event in the British chess calendar. And it became incredibly popular in the late 19th century. 
absolutely. I think for the young players playing in this match, it's an incredible event for them because they've never played chess in this kind of environment before. It puts incredible pressure on them. And some of them rise to the occasion and play good chess. Some of them freeze and play bad chess. I guess it's it's a kind of reflection of society in a, in a strange way. We used to have seven boards in this match, which is a very illogical number of boards for a chess match because one team has one more white than black. And then they had what they called the ladies' board back around about the late 70s, early 80s. And this board did not count towards the match result. It was used as a tie-break. And then suddenly, you know, they became part of the, the match score later on. And then eventually, I think in the late 1990s, we actually had women playing on the top boards of this match. It kind of reflected women showing that they could play chess as well as men. Because in the early days, there were no women playing in this match. This match had been going for 100 years before any women played, which is kind of incredible. The other thing it reflects, in the early days of the match, I think people used to come to this match not to see the players play. They used to come because it was a society occasion, really for the first 70, 80 years of its history, until we had grandmasters playing in it. We didn't have top players playing in this match until the 1950s. Until then, it was a, a gentleman's match, until the 1970s and 80s when we had grandmasters taking part in the match. So that is crazy that in 1874, 700 people went along to watch that, which I think is just fantastic. I mean, is that a good sign how chess has developed or a bad sign? I'm not sure, but that's a lot of people. I think it, it it's related very much to what we were talking about in previous podcasts, Si, about how the game has been devalued over time and the, there was just been a, a general devaluation of intellectual pursuits. So, you know, these guys were revered back then. This was seen as a highlight event. Yeah, I mean, I also think, Loz, you know, the, the internet's come along and, you know, people now, rather than travel down to a local chess club or pop along to a tournament, they'd rather sit at home, play five-minute chess for four hours on end, you know, um, and maybe even waste their time listening to us as well. But does that mean chess has gone downhill, Loz? People look at it in a worse light now, a hundred and so years on? I, d- I don't know if it's gone downhill. I'm not really sure. I, I think it was a status symbol, wasn't it? Being able to play chess, play chess for Cambridge and Oxford, you know, two of the greatest institutions in the world. There's something upper class, aristocratic. Did you turn down your place at Oxford, by the way, Loz? I, yeah, I, I, I did. You, you did. Yeah, oh, I, right. I, 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 I told them to stuff it, actually. Yeah. How dare thought, they I thought that was the case, you know. I thought yeah, bigger, better things going on in your life. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like full English no. breakfast. You said, if I do this, I have no time for the full English breakfast. That's right. You can take your place and stuff That's it. That's right. No, <laughs> actually, um, where they played the uh, the event, the RAC club, but I don't know if you've been there before. Oh, so I have. You must beautiful. Have been there, Absolutely yeah. beautiful place. Lovely yeah. place. Yeah. I actually know somebody who used to work there, receptionist, and uh, been there a bunch of times and really sort of typically British oh, upper-class establishment. I mean, I, I want to give a shout-out to Sheldon Marshall. I mean, that is a proper good name, that one, isn't it? Sheldon Marshall. But he runs the, used to run the chess club there, and I used to meet him. And it, it's just a fantastic venue, Lawrence. I mean, one of these places you kind of watch on Inspector Morse films or something like that, you know? Yeah. It's great. Well, you mentioned 1870s and the early days of this varsity match. I mean, there are some parallels. You had 700 spectators then. We had over 1,000 spectators this year by virtue of the fact that it was online, that it was broadcast. And there's other parallels as well. In the old days, you had guys like Howard Staunton, Wilhelm Steinitz, and Zuckertort were uh, spectators at this match. 
And today we had uh, Grandmasters Luke Machane and John Spielman providing uh, commentary. And I also got a chance to have a quick chat with Luke McShane, um, who was himself an alumnus of Oxford. When you were a student, did you have the impression that the student body cared about the match, was aware of the match, the rivalry between Oxford and Cambridge? Well, I guess it probably gets a bit less coverage than the boat race, if you see what I mean. But sure, the, the people who are interested in, in chess definitely cared about it. So, yeah, yeah, it, it, it matters. And, and, and uh, anything that's running for 135 uh, editions is pretty extraordinary, so I, I like that. What was your, your general sense of this year's match here? Well, it's been very close. Um, we, we knew it was going to be very close from the ratings and the lineup at the start of the match, and I'm pleased to see the Oxford in, in good shape. So uh, what about you? Uh, are you planning to play much these days? Um, I'm not playing so much, but I'm still kind of active. I played the Olympiad in Baku, and I played at the London Classic. I'm still playing uh, a little bit. So floating around, but not in a professional way. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, I mean, you've, you've kind of had some periods where you were playing a lot of events in a row. Like, mm. I remember we, we had a chat, actually, for the Full English Breakfast uh, in Moscow once. Oh, yeah, once. yeah, I remember that. Yeah, yeah. I wasn't, uh, also wasn't a professional at, at the time. Right, so, in fact, um, you were flying to go to work the next day, as I recall. Right, exactly. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> but you were playing very well, and you had a good result. Yes, well, I still like playing well when I get a chance. <laughs> Other uh, famous alumni from uh, the match include John Nunn, Ray Keane, Jonathan Rousen, and this was new to me, but Amon Simutawa, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, but uh, he, uh, you may know he was the, the first Grandmaster from Sub-Saharan Africa and was a student at Oxford. I actually played him once, McCauley, and uh, it was quite weird. He was, he was a very strong player at the time, but it was one of those instances when I kind of felt a little bit guilty because I was, I was worse in the game. And uh, we got to move. I wasn't sure about the time control, but he thought he'd made the time control. He hadn't made the time control and he lost on time and he had a winning position. So I took the win. Is that rude? Is that bad? Would you have done that, Loz? Unclear. Unclear. <laughs> Let's leave it Unclear. Yeah, OK. <laughs> well, bringing it back to Oxford-Cambridge, one other notable theme in the history of this match is that you have this merging of the amateur and competitive chess worlds with the, the fact that you have the so many of these grandmasters that have actually come out of schools and then have to decide whether or not they want to be professional grandmasters. You know, I, Luke McShane is probably one of the most famous examples of this in recent times. I mean, he, he's famous, isn't he, Luke? Just been, uh, they call him the strongest amateur chess player in the world. In one of the most talented players in the last 20 years to play the game. You know, he, he, he won the Junior World Championships above some of the strongest names. I know he was very young at the time. You know, he worked for Goldman Sachs, didn't he, as well? So he clearly wanted to earn some money in other areas where you, you might not be able to earn that money in chess unless you're in the top five in the world or something. Yeah, Luke, uh, top bloke as well. One of the nicest guys you'll meet on the circuit. Certainly one of the guys I looked up to. I think in Luke's case, to go professional, at least for a short period of time, was quite logical because he was so talented. But this topic of should a young player who's a very strong player, grandmaster material, go pro, it's not an easy decision because, let's face it, your average grandmaster, and I'm talking about even grandmasters who reach 2600 and above, 
really struggle to make some kind of money just playing. Well, one of the guys playing in the varsity match who uh, is facing this dilemma about how seriously to take his chess career right now is another up-and-coming player, but for Cambridge, and that's Daniel Fernandez. You've probably followed him as a, as a top junior, but uh, I didn't know that he already had three Grandmaster norms. I would say I've been semi-professional through my degree. I won't ever be a professional, probably, but I have tried at least. Tell me a little bit about the chess scene in Cambridge. This is difficult because nobody usually wants to play during term. I've had some informal meetups with our current board one and board five, but those are really on an ad hoc basis. So will, will the student body be aware that this match is going on, maybe even following it online? I imagine anyone who knows one of the players personally will be following the match with some interest. So competitive chess at Cambridge is not followed as a sport in the way that other, other sports are? People don't have much time for anything really in Cambridge. Um, there are varsity matches that are important, like the boat race and amateur boxing match, which happened last night. There's not a whole lot else that would be followed by the university as a whole. And uh, what, what do you study there? I study mathematics. Okay, so you're, uh, well, I was going to say you're following in Luke McShane's footsteps, but he uh, studied at Oxford, of course. <laughs> He studied maths with something, didn't he? Maths with philosophy, possibly. Uh We have discussed this when I played him in the British Knockout in December 2015. Do you have a sense of uh, what you hope to do with your degree uh, once you finish? Well, I had what you might call a mid-degree crisis. I, I suppose I just wondered about switching out of it a few times. Had some motivation issues with the subject itself. Chess did play something of part in that. Chess has uh, been detrimental to your, to your studies, at least uh, <laughs> in some respect? Yes, and thank God. <laughs> what, what were you considering changing to? I was considering, initially, a complete change to linguistics. Much later on, I considered a specialization, as it were, to astrophysics. I didn't do either of them. I think that was a good decision overall. I've been an international master for seven years. So, not quite comparable to Lawrence, but somewhere up there. No, Daniel is obviously a very strong player. He will get there. He just needs to get the rating. Obviously, he will do that. I think he's only actually a few points off now, so he should just choose his tournaments very carefully and get the job done. Talking more generally about British chess, and you know, if we look at Daniel, let's say, assume that he does become a grandmaster pretty soon. I can't remember the last time, Simon, we had a bunch of grandmasters. I think the last one was actually Jonathan Hawkins. Yeah, I mean, I think this is an important point, Lars. I mean, if you compare our country to other countries such as Germany, Holland, you know, other countries very similar to us, France, they seem to breed grandmasters like, you know, every second of the day. They're, they're, they're coming out from everywhere at young ages, but in England something is not going right because when was our last grandmaster okay it was hawkins and uh, he's he was an old grandmaster as such he became a grandmaster what around late 20s i guess maybe i don't know but it wasn't in his teens that's for sure so what are we doing wrong laws what are we doing something wrong in this country yeah the problem is where is the next bunch of gms coming from in the uk Well, we know how difficult it is just to make a living. I mean, let's look at the weekend grinders, you know, the Keith Arkles, Mark Hebdens, and so on, who have been doing it for years. Their situation has been getting worse and worse. We are just not producing enough future talents to keep our game going. Without these guys, there is no future. 
I mean, what's going to happen if, if even the likes of Mickey and Nigel and Matthew Sadler, if we talk about 10 years time, even 15 years time, they're not going to be able to maintain the sort of level. Well, and as far as the young stars, it does sound like from the clip we heard with Daniel Fernandez that once he finishes up at Cambridge, he's probably not likely to become a chess professional. Well, it's a tough decision for him. He, he either makes hundred grand a year getting a job or ten grand a year playing chess. Exactly. I mean, it's yeah. Oh, I wonder which one. Even if he does become a grandmaster, it doesn't matter if he becomes. A Even grandmaster. if he becomes a grandmaster, it doesn't master, matter. Yeah. It's irrelevant. It, it's yeah. irrelevant nowadays if he's got that GM title or not. If he's raised twenty five ten or twenty five twenty, you cannot make a living. Even twenty six hundred. Yeah, twenty. Even even above that, if you go outside the top fifty, the gap between the top ten and the rest of the world is just huge even the gap between the top five and the rest of the top 10 is huge right yeah so becoming a chess professional who who would want to do it nowadays unless you are 2700 plus if you are an average grandmaster you will not make money simply playing and that is really sad all right well i want to wind this up i think we definitely have another show in our future on the tension between uh, priorities of amateur professional and scholastic chess what federations should be doing. This is a problem not just in the UK, but in, in many places. Definitely an interesting subject to come back to. But uh, for a little bit of a different take on the amateur chess player experience in the UK, we have our new segment with Nick Murphy and a nickel for your thoughts. There's something quite odd about being involved in chess in Britain. In my experience, when someone discovers that you like chess and that you play it regularly, there's a two-stage reaction they go through. Firstly, oh, you must be very geeky or brainy, or you must be single, or quite often all of the above, which is often followed by, you know, I'd love to learn how to play chess properly. But chess has a very unique position in the psyche of the UK population. So many of us are familiar with it, most of us know the moves, yet very few ever admit to playing chess for pleasure. I recall sitting in the pub one day with three of my fellow actors enjoying a few beers after a show. One particular actor turns to me during a conversation about chess, which I probably started, and said, very good-naturedly, but chess is only played by geeks and people with no real friends. I then pointed out to him that the two real people that I played chess with more than anyone else were in fact the other two actors at the table. Although, glancing at them as I spoke, I did notice that they were sitting in an embarrassed silence that was eventually broken when one of them shyly admitted that he actually liked playing chess. And then the other one admitted the same. Finally, the third actor, the one that had originally said chess is only played by geeks, said that he wouldn't mind learning the moves actually if I had the time to teach him one day. Yes, chess can be geeky, but it shouldn't be a guilty pleasure. And as actor and screenwriter Simon Pegg said, being a geek is all about being honest about what you enjoy and not being afraid to demonstrate that affection. It means never having to play it cool about how much you like something. Being a geek is extremely liberating. Be extremely liberated, my friends, and thank you for listening. You know, luckily, you know, in some places it's cool to be a geek now, but I, I don't think that really applies to England quite yet. This whole geek thing playing chess, 
that's another thing that needs to be changed in order for chess to get more money and sponsorship, etc. Well, my takeaway was kind of that you have this phenomenon of chess players in the closet, so to speak. They kind of don't want to own up to the fact that they're actually uh, fans of the game because there's somehow just this perception that it's uncool, when really there's probably a lot more of us out there, you know? <laughs> there should be strength in numbers. I like that. And I'll tell you what, there are a lot of things that I've got in my closet that I wouldn't <laughs> want to be, you know. <laughs> okay, well, on that note, we've got to get out. Simon, tell us what's new at Ginger GM real quick. New DVD by Tiger Hillett Person coming out soon on Tiger's Modern and generally creating loads of free stuff on YouTube. So check out some of my videos if you want. All right, that does it for this episode of The Full English Breakfast. Thanks again to Nick Murphy for giving us your five cents. And thanks to all of you for your comments that we've been getting on our Twitter feed at The FEB Show and on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash The FEB. Even the guy who wrote in to say that our comments on Who You Fan a couple of shows ago, quote, reeked of misogyny and paternalism. I took that a little bit hard, given that I consider myself a staunch feminist and have a young daughter. But I revisited that show a couple of times, and uh, I gotta say, I still think that's a pretty strong exaggeration. But anyway, thanks for your feedback, good or bad, and be sure to share any of your ideas for guests that you'd like to see. And speaking of sharing, thanks also if you've shared the episode with your friends, or leave us a review or rating on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back next week for more chess stories on The Foolish Breakfast. Can me and McCauley have one guess what your top secret thing is? Are you going to become a male chess stripper? It's not a bad idea, actually. <laughs> <laughs>